Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, my friends, I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle How to Overcome and Lead, after being knocked down is now available for pre-order. I'll make sure the link is available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Welcome, my friends, to another awesome episode of the Storybox podcast. And today, have I got a story for you. This one is darkly humorous. It's inspiring. It's someone who I think you guys are really going to connect with and love where he's come from and who he is today, in fact. His name is Richie Stevens. Now, he's an actor who often plays hardened gangsters and criminals This is easy for him because he was a drug trafficker, kidnapper, drug addict, alcoholic, and all-around criminal himself. His life twisted and turned in harrowing, self-destructive adventures that took him from his native Ireland to San Francisco, Australia, and finally LA, coalescing into a classic tale of a man trying to run from his problems by moving to new and more exotic locations a hard and painful realization that comes at a point in which he's about to take his own life. And there's many instances where he tries to actually take his own life, which we do touch on during this conversation. So I do want to warn those people that if you are triggered by these sorts of conversations, and please uh, just be careful as you are listening to it. The only reason there is a story to tell is because he did not kill himself. Instead, he found help and in doing so, found himself. And more than that, he found that help comes in many different forms. And oftentimes it just takes the right thought to hit at the right time for it all to make sense. I've often talked about that light bulb moment. Richie Stevens has a brand new book out called The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety, which is honestly a gripping tale. It's open, it's honest, and I highly encourage you guys, if you do enjoy this conversation and listening to the wild and crazy stories that he has actually lived through himself, 
then you'll definitely enjoy this book. I'll make sure that the links for it will be in the show notes below. But even at Richie's darkest moments, there is a keen for a keen eye for understanding of the absurd nature of life as Richie comes to grips with his failings and his faith while also entertaining or entering a place, sorry, of self-acceptance. This is a story of also redemption and the power of the human spirit and how sometimes you have to turn to something greater than yourself. And ultimately, Richie did turn his life around and he's starred in films and TV shows such as Blue Bloods, MacGyver, Criminal Minds and Days of Our Lives, just to name but a, flu- a few. He's also working on a, a show based around his own life, which I think is pretty, pretty incredible. So my friends, if you do get something from this conversation, and I have no doubt that you will, then please share it around to all your friends and your family. I first learned of Richie's story on the Rich Roll podcast, which I'll link also for you guys to listen to. Two hours of goodness, honestly. Um, It's an outrageous tale, and I personally loved every second of it. Um, And also who Richie is today, to be honest with you. I think you guys are are really going to admire. Um, So also do do yourselves a favor and get a copy of his brand new book, The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety. Links will be in the show notes below once again. And don't forget that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down, is now available for pre-order. Links for that will be in the show notes below. If you are in America or UK, Canada, uh, wherever you are, New Zealand, and even my home country of Australia, then you can pre-order a copy as well. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box as we learn more about the darkly humorous and the truly inspiring stories and the wisdom and the advice that comes along with it of none other than Richie Stevens. Thanks, Jay. It's good, good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. How you doing, man? How are things in in your life currently? Well, things are good. Been busy since the book came out. I've had a lot of people reaching out to me and doing a lot of media and seeing what the plan is next for the the TV version of the book. Yeah, man. I mean, I listened to your conversation with Rich. That's how I discovered you, and loved the conversation that you both had. You have one of the wildest stories I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. Uh, so in depth, so so much is happening with your life and and the way you've been able to turn it around to. So we'll get to that in just a moment. But the very first question that I do have for you is, what does success look like for you? Oh, well, for me, I think success. Thanks, anyway, for the kind words, uh, Jay. But yeah, for me, success is just about really doing the best you can with what you behind you've been dealt. You know, just every day, and the the rest is out of your hands. That's all you can do. Yeah. I love that definition, man. Why is that success for you? When was the moment that you realized that it was success? Well, for me, it's an ongoing thing. Uh, <laughs> you have to keep on showing up like that, but you know, I try and stay right sized and keep my ego in check. I don't. Uh, I don't. Don't pat myself on the back too much. Just try and stay humble and keep on doing my best. Yeah. Humility is really, really foundational and important. And that's what I get a lot from you and, and 
listening to your conversations uh, as well, like you are everything that you've been through, you are, and everything that you're doing currently, you are quite a humble individual. Um, I want to get to your childhood for a moment, going back, way back, man. Yeah. So how did it all begin for you? How did you grow up? Did you have a stable home? Was it a bit restless? What what was happening for you growing up? I had a relatively normal home. Like there's nothing wrong with my parents. You know, they were, they were working people. Just uh, they never were in any trouble with the law or anything like that. I'm kind of the first one of my family to behave badly, really. You know, I'm like the black sheep of my family. But I'm from a place called Cavan in, in Ireland. It's small county near the border of Northern Ireland. And when I was growing up, everybody seemed to like drinking in Ireland. Like the nearest town to me, Arva, I'd say there was about maybe five or 600 people in the town, but there was 14 pubs. Mm-hmm. So, so <laughs> that, that just goes to, back then there was, that, that just goes to show how much people like drinking back then. And, because it rains in Ireland as well, so there's not a whole lot to do as well, you know, because <laughs> you don't want to go outside and get wet, it's cold. And, um, I was a kind of a shy kid. I, I um, kept to myself. I didn't have a whole lot of self-confidence. And when I started drinking, I was about 14 or 15 years old. And uh, for me, it, it, it uh, did something for me. Like, um, I didn't care about what anybody thought about me. And I was kind of fearless once I drank it. So when I discovered alcohol, I just decided I want to drink as much as I can, as often as I can. It just led me down a crazy sort of a road. <laughs> How old were you when you started drinking? I'd say I was about 14 or 15. 14, uh, yeah, 15, wow. Yeah, I went to a concert with some friends uh, down in Galway, the, the, the West Coast. I was in the music. I went to one of those festival concerts and, the Beastie Boys and Pulp and Garbage, the guy from the Stone Roses, Ian Brown. It was, it was a great concert. And I was coming home with my buddy on the bus, and this chick that I knew, she offered me a drink of Heineken. So, you know, I was a bit nervous, but uh, I, I didn't want to say no because I wanted to seem cool. Like, so when I tried the drink, I was like, wow, this, this has totally changed my perception. It was life changing. So that's, that's how I had the first one. But, you know, once 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 I got used to it, it's what I had to do all the time. Was there a lot of crime in your area at all? Yeah, not in my particular area. It was nice enough, but uh, in Calvin Town, there would have been bad parts of it. And like, I suppose I don't I don't really think of it as crime because it seemed normal to me growing up. But like, compared to America, like uh, <laughs> there's a lot of fist fights. You know, and, and drunken stuff when I was growing up, that was just normal, you know, for me to see all the time. Like, because uh, our, our little drinking culture and we used to go out for nights out afterwards. Everybody goes to the chip shop, you know, that, uh, get burgers and fries and that kind of stuff. And that was the place where all the action happened at the end of the night, because you have all these drunk men and, you know, maybe they're annoyed because they didn't score or. They have a beef with somebody, and this is where the fighting used to start. So there's there a lot of fights. I remember seeing it growing up. It was, it was very exciting. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, man. How did that, growing up with all those experiences and, and seeing all those things, how did that shape 
number one, your identity, and number two, what you thought it meant to be a man. Like this, this macho, I've got to have a drink, get into fist fights, seeing all those, all those things happening. What did that teach you about ultimately being a man? And has it changed for you now? Being well, yeah. When you grow up like that, it's pretty masculine. Like <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you settle your differences with with fists and. Um, you don't talk about your feelings or anything like that, you know, like, uh, but when I was younger, uh, or when I was drinking, that's when I would be able to talk about my feelings after a few beers. That's, that's when it, I would start to open up and the emotions would come out. But yeah, it, it gives you kind of a, an old school opinion of what it means to be a man, to be tough, you know, don't let anything bother you, you know, stand up for yourself, you know, fight if, if, someone disrespects you you know that's that's what i saw growing up not not from my family my old man was never fighting that i know of like but from going out and about and seeing the other dudes that's yeah that's that's what i observed and that became normal for me and you know i haven't been in a fight since last since when i was i was drinking so i, I don't fight anymore uh it's really risky too in america like in california if you hit somebody even a slap or a push, you're going to jail. So, yeah, uh, just as well, <laughs> I don't behave like that anymore. Yeah, these days it's totally different. <laughs> I mean, you can end up in court or jail, or crazy things can happen to you as well. But is it still like that over in Ireland, or is it sort of calmed down too? I think it has calmed down a lot. You know, I moved over to America in 2005, and I always found that. What, that, like at the time Ireland was booming the recession was 2008 2009 so at that time when I came to America it seemed like the craziest guys were the ones who emigrated like I met like rednecks in America Irish guys who you wouldn't meet in Ireland but you know it seemed like the wildest guys left but Ireland has changed a lot you know when I, when I was a kid um, it was illegal to be gay in Ireland until 92 and divorce only became legalized in 96, you know, and Ireland just had like a, a gay prime minister. So, so times have changed, you know, people used to be really religious as well and not so much anymore. So I go back to visit now and again, but I think it's a lot different from when I was growing up. Mm. I know Irish have sort of Catholic roots. Is that, is that right? Catholic and Protestant? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was raised Catholic, but my old man was a Protestant, so it kind of caused some problems for me when I was younger because I went to uh, a Catholic school, so I was kind of treated by the treated by a lot of kids like I was the enemy, and that yeah. that definitely toughened me up too. Do you remember the worst fight that you ever got into in school or growing up? So I've had a few, like. Um, I was beaten and tortured one time when I was about 19 or 20. That's not really a fight, but it was pretty bad. Torture, um, Yeah, at the time, um, basically this guy called Sullivan, that's what we call him in the book, we had to change all the names, but but uh, this guy came to my house with a couple of people um, on a Sunday night. I was, uh, I was in bed and, and the doorbell rang and I answered the door and I came down and him and the two guys barged into the house and put me into a chair and, and held me down. And the guy went into the kitchen and he came out with a kitchen knife, like a bread knife, and he put it to my throat 
forced my throat back so much so if I moved it would cut my head off <laughs> and uh, he beat the lugs off me he, he, you know he wanted to get information out of me and I got a long beat maybe 20 minutes half an hour uh, all I, you know I didn't even have any clothes on I was in my underwear because I was in bed when the doorbell rang but they beat the crap out of me and all they could do was try and hold my hands up as much as I could and they, he wanted to know where my friend lived and what his connections were to the Irish terrorists as well, but I didn't want to give up my friends, so I took the beating. And, um, they stomped on me, kicked me, my whole head was all swollen and everything. And, and then at the very end of it, the guy, he leaned forward. And, uh, can we curse on this, Jay, or no? Yeah, yeah go for it, man. He leaned forward and he said, Richie, you're a nice fella, but you're fucking stupid. And then he, he jumped in, and he he bit my nose. He tried to bite the top of my nose out of it. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> but my nose didn't come off. But uh, I was like ah, screaming. And uh, <laughs> and then he got up and he left. And uh, I went to the mirror and I looked at my mirror. Uh, looked in the mirror. My nose was still on, but there was, there was bite marks. I still have the marks of it. My nose here. Then I had to go to the hospital to see if I needed stitches. They had to give me a tetanus shot in my ass. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and my my face was swollen for several weeks after it. It was, well, it kind of looked like an alien, you know. But uh, that's one of the worst beatings I've ever had. Um, but uh, I got another bad one too as well. Um, I think it was maybe six months before that one. That was a very bad year. Uh, I was out in Cavan, where I'm from, and at the time I was on probation, so. I wasn't allowed to do drugs. Like I, I was a messy drunk. So, um, cause I, <laughs> I was used to doing drugs from about 18 onwards. I'd do ecstasy or cocaine and, and that would, that would kind of keep me relatively sober instead of getting messy drunk. But I was on probation at the time and I had to do, um, drug tests regularly. So I couldn't, I couldn't really be taking the drugs. So I, I couldn't handle the booze anymore. And I was out and I was running my mouth and, it was this guy who um, snitched on me to the cops and I was talking to some relatives of his or something and I was really drunk and I think I was getting belligerent and, and uh, my friend who was with me, he left me on my own with these guys and uh, I got like a bottle across the head, a wine bottle smashed it up, uh, off the top of my head and they beat the lugs off me. They um, knocked out this front tooth. Um, I was unconscious for a good few hours I woke up I was all covered in in glass and blood and they took my phone and my wallet and I had to go to the hospital I was in the hospital for three or four days after because they were kicking me in the kidneys and, and I was pissing blood uh, from all the kicks <laughs> to the kidneys so that, that one was probably the worst one what yeah. led to the first fight like the the first worst beating that you're describing what led to that happening okay so Long story short, if you hang around with dogs, you get pleased. <laughs> but but what, what actually happened is one of my best friends, Tomo, we used to live with this chick called Mary. And uh, Tomo was a dealer. And uh, he, used to, he used to give out drugs on credit. And uh, Mary got a lot of, lot of drugs on credit. So she, she worked up a big tab. And um, she had no intention of paying for it. And, like six months or a year later, when she had moved out, she still owed the money. And this psycho guy, Sullivan, who came into the house and uh, beat me up, he had a baby with this chick. 
And um, my friend Tom used to call her up asking for the money. Said, Mush, where's that money? You got that money on me? And uh, I think she got sick of uh, being asked for it. So she told the psycho guy that he was going to kidnap their kid. So the psycho guy, like, believed his kid was going to be kidnapped by my friend. And my friend, he was a bit of a loner, like nobody really knew where he lived. He was kind of a quiet type. But uh, me and him were really close friends. And so I knew where he lived. So basically the guy came to my house to make me tell him where Tomo lived. So that's why. <laughs> and that's, why that's what led to the beating, right? Okay. So is yeah, that- he wanted the information out of me and I wouldn't give him the information or pretend that I didn't know. Is that what eventually after the beating led you to kidnapping that, that whole story? Or was that no, before? That was, that, was, that was totally unconnected. <laughs> oh, unconnected. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that was, that was, uh, so basically, um, I owed a lot of money to Tom Owen. Um, there was another guy, Travis. He was, we were only 19 or 20 at the time, me and Tom, but Travis was in his 30s. He was kind of a hippie guy. He was nice, harmless. You know, and um, he got a few kilos of hash off Tomo on credit, and um, he had no intention of paying for it. He just basically got the drugs on credit, stopped answering the phone, and was just going to steal it. Like, and uh, our supplier was this other more dangerous guy called Smiling Pat, and Smiling Pat was calling Tomo looking for his money because he had got those drugs on credit and then given them out on credit. And he was putting power to- tools on the phone, like drills and saws, and saying, this is what you, you're going to get if you don't pay me that money. So uh, so Tomo was in a tight spot. I owed money to Tomo. Travis owed him a lot of money and had no intention of paying for it. So I was told if I helped him kidnap uh, Travis, then uh, his parents could pay the money. Aren't his parents had money? And, and, uh, and then... He'd wipe off, off my debt as well. And and then, and it, to be honest, if I didn't do it, I think they probably would, would have done that to me anyway. So I really didn't think I had a choice. In it. So um, what happened was I had to spot the guy. And when I saw him, I had to call Tomo. And Tomo had another crew of guys. These were all ex-cons from Dublin. There was our crew who hung around young guys. And then there was these older ex-cons who used to hang around with Tomo. And, so I had to call him whenever I see Travis and then uh, they'd come and get him. And the plan was they'd take him to a safe house and make him, make him call his family and get the money. So I helped him with that. They took him and brought him up to the safe house. The safe house turned out to be Tomo's own house. He didn't have a safe house. He found his own place. And uh, yeah, he tried to scare him uh, into giving up, the, give, into calling his parents. First he started to pretend that, that they didn't have any money and, he went in, he, he got some trash bags. And he says, Mush, you get the fucking money or you're going to the fucking bin bag. And that scared him. He rang the parents. Parents drove up with the money. It was, I don't know how many thousand it was. It was a couple of kilos of hash at the time. But And then each of the, the kidnappers were paid for their partner too. And whatever I owed was on there too. And then uh, Tomo went to meet went to meet them. And he put one of those Arab scarves around his face so that he couldn't see his, see his face and told him to come to this parking lot and um, came out and the mother was like, please don't hurt him. And uh, he goes, Mush, I don't know what about it. I'm just here to pick up the money. <laughs> and they gave up the money and, and then they let him go unharmed. 
What was going through your mind during that whole ordeal, man? Well, to start, I, w- I was thinking, you know, he deserves it. He did a bad thing. He owes the money. But then as soon as, like, because I was there watching when they took him out of the pub, when, when they, they got him, as soon as I seen them taking him, I really I immediately felt bad about it because he wasn't a bad guy. And then they had promised they wouldn't kill him. But then at that moment, I didn't know whether he was going to come back alive or not. So no, I felt really regretful after it happened, yeah. you know. Didn't yeah. really think it through beforehand. Did the um did the parents press charges at all, or any, did anything happen as a result of that, or just no. they let it go? No, they let it go. He owed the money. He knew he owed the money. Wow! <laughs> you be surprised how, how how much of that stuff happens. That stuff happens, you know. Does it happen often over there? Do you know? I'm sure it happens in Australia too. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it does happen. Still here, I'm probably like, I'm not in the world, so we'd have no clue, but <laughs> I'm not naive enough to think that it doesn't happen. Like, you only hear about the ones that the cops caught them or the ones that went wrong. Yeah, exactly. Like, you don't hear about the ones that they weren't caught or anything like that. So, no, mm-hmm. thank you for sharing that, man. And I, I wanted to ask you about going into, like, the, the crime world. I mean, it's not – I mean, everyone, I think, growing up, they have they have choices in their life. Was that – what would what led you to going down that path? Well, for me, like I didn't want to become a criminal. I didn't have ambitions to be Scarface or anything like that. It basically started off as a young kid. I wanted booze and and uh, and I wanted to get into the clubs and the bars. And I was only fifteen or sixteen, and you need a fake ID to do that. So I ended up making fake IDs for myself and my friends, and then. Other people kept asking me to, to make them for them. And my friend proposed that we set up a business. So my first criminal thing was making a business of fake, fake IDs. And then the thing just mushroomed, like the demand, people, everybody in my school wanted them, people in other schools wanted them. So that just kind of happened by default. People wanting the fake IDs and it kind of got out of hand. And, and then later it was the same thing with the drugs. Like I was kind of the first first one of my group of friends to start taking ecstasy and then all my friends were asking me to get it as a favor and then I was afraid to be a dealer because you know it's serious crime you can go to jail if you're caught but I was doing it as a favor like getting drugs for different people and then Tomo he was my supplier and he goes Mush why don't you just get a hundred at a time you can sell them you get your own for free and you make a few quid and I was like, no, no, that's dealing. Uh, I don't want to be involved in dealing. And he, he goes, Mosh, you're already dealing. I was like, no, I'm not. I'm getting, doing it as a favor. And he told me that the, 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 the way the law is written, the charge is for sale or supply. So mm-hmm. he goes, Mosh, you're already supplying them. You're, you're doing it for free. So you're dealing for free. I was like, well, I fuck, he's right. Like, I am doing it for free. And then that's how it started with that. Same thing. The demand grew. I kept meeting more people. You know, I've I've always had lots of friends, so I just like kept meeting people and it just got bigger and bigger. And then as things went, I got like more addicted to the drugs and I needed more to to keep going. And just one thing led to another. It wasn't like I just decided I was going to become a criminal. It just kind of happened like that, you know. Did you end up, did anything happen with you doing those fake IDs? Oh yeah, I got caught by the cops. Like <laughs> my, my friend, uh, my business partner, who, who proposed that we set up the, the the business, it was him who snitched on me. 
you know, I guess one of the kids got caught and the parents brought the ID to the cops and the cops asked the kid, where did you get it? And he said, oh, I got it from Walter, Richie's friend. And, and then the cops came to see Walter and him and his old man rolled over straight away. Like, <laughs> the cops asked, oh, yeah, I've been telling them Richie's making them. And then, <laughs> and then I, I come home one day, my mother says, the police were looking for you. I said, what? You, know, you have to go to make a statement. I was like, oh, shit. And that's how I got caught. And then I, you know, I went in and, you know, I said, I'm sorry, I only met a couple for my friends. I won't do it again. You know, and they, they let me go with the warning. They didn't, they didn't have any evidence how many of them I had been making. I just said it was a few. And then I, I just got off the hook. I was lucky, but I was, I was a kid, so I wouldn't went to jail. How old were you? Like 15 or 16. Yeah, man, you just... You're a kid. <laughs> yeah. trying, trying to make a quick buck on the side. I mean, that seem, seems very harmless to me at, at least. But what were your your parents' reactions? Like, did they try to stop you at all from doing this? Like the IDs, did they know? Yeah, they all? were mortified. Like, you know, as I said, my parents aren't criminals, so they had no idea I was, I was doing it. You know, I was living a double life and I was doing it secretly. So, yeah, they were pretty shocked and they obviously didn't want me to be doing that. They'd like place any restrictions on you after that or like groundings? <laughs> I think at that point it was probably too late because I was old enough to not be listening to them anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes yeah total sense. But where, where did you go to from there? So you mentioned that you, you started doing drugs and dealing drugs and what ended up happening with that whole story, man, did you end up getting caught at all or? Yeah, I got caught. Um, I was about 19 and, and um, at that point I had been sending them all over the country with different people. It just got bigger and bigger and bigger. There was a guy from Calvin, I think we call him Ollie in the book, but um, he was one of my people I was supplying. And I didn't really know him, but I kind of thought, he would be trustworthy because his family were like IRA people. So I thought they would never snitch on me, you know, and he seemed like he had his shit together. Um, I heard a rumor that he got caught in a club. He was, he, he was caught with 50 or a hundred ecstasy pills in a nightclub. And that's what the rumor was. And I asked him about it. He goes, that's ah, no big deal, you know? And then like a week or two later, he asked me to come down with everything I had because he told me there was a big party going on. And I had a load of speed and ecstasy and, you know, I had a feeling that he might be sketchy, you know, because um, he kept ringing me the whole time on the way down. Where are you now? Where are you now? Where are you now? Let's get a shit. And uh, I was getting spooked, you know, and, and uh, I was taking the bus down to cabin and I, I didn't want to go all the way to Calvin on the bus because I was a feeling if the cops were waiting for me, um, they'd be there. So I got off a few steps, a few stops before that. I hopped off the bus and I had some friends who were waiting for me and saw the car and I got into the car. And then as soon as I got in, the drug police were there. They were like, don't move, guys. You're under arrest. So, uh, <laughs> put the handcuffs on me and... Uh, brought me away and I had I had the bag of stuff with me. There was no denying it. And then they brought me in and like uh, at that point, you know, I think I was, I was so sick of 
looking over my shoulder and watching out for the cops. Um, I kind of, it was a relief in some ways because I was like, ah, oh, the stress is over. Finally, <laughs> something stopped me. They brought me into the police station and they strip searched me. You know, uh, I had like one of those telescopic battens. I don't know what you call them. And they're like a hasp, you know, one of, one of these little metal bars that you flip it out and it goes, and it's like, so I had one of them with me as well in case anybody robbed me. It looked really professional. I had ecstasy, I had amphetamines, I had two different currencies, and I had one of these weapons with me. And um, they were strip searching me and going through all my possessions in the police station. And there was like three drug squad cops. There was uh, two men and a chick. And one of the drug squad cops pulls out the hasp, you know, the metal bar, and he didn't know what it was. And uh, and he's like looking at it because it's about a foot long. It looks kind of it has a handle. He's like looking at it, turning it upside down. He goes, "What's that?" And then the other cop takes it off him and he flips it out and he goes, "It's for fucking beating people, isn't it?" <laughs> he said. And I was like, "No, I was only protecting myself with it because I never beat anybody with it. It literally was for my protection." And uh, but yeah, it was kind of just you take off all your clothes, they look up your ass with a, a flashlight to see if you're hiding any drugs up there. And, you know, jeez, invasion yeah. of privacy, right? Uh, yeah, that's what I guess. <laughs> that's <laughs> what happens when you're when you're dealing drugs and you get caught. And then you know, I I just said fuck it. I'll be honest. I just admit their mind. You know, they've called me dead to rights. So. I wrote out a statement admitting my guilt, but then they wanted me to snitch on the guy who I was getting it from. They said, they said, we just want the bigger fella. All we want is the bigger fella. You won't even go to court. And I wasn't going to do that because if you snitch on people, you have to look over your shoulder for the rest of your life and your family are in danger. So I was going to take, take my medicine, you know? And at the time I had a business partner, this guy called Ross. He was like one of my best buddies. I used to sell all the ecstasy and Coke. And he used to sell all the hash. We were like best buds and he wasn't caught. So I wasn't going to snitch on him, you know, either. Or the person that was getting them off. So I just said, fuck it, I'll take my medicine and I'll have to, I'll have to, you know, might have to do some time. And, um, and then I had to call, like you get one phone call when you're in the police station. So I had to call my parents and tell them I was arrested, you know, and they had no idea that I even did drugs. So I'm ringing them, telling them I'm, I'm in some pretty deep trouble. Like I rang, rang the house and my mother picked up the phone. And I said, I'm in the police station. Uh, you're going to have to come down and pick me up like to see what's going on. And uh, she thought I was joking. She thought it was a practical joke. She's like, stop, stop. She, she didn't, she, she thought I was fucking with her. And I had to give the phone to the superintendent for him to talk to her. And he was like, no, this is very serious. You'll have to come down. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't fair. My parents, they were obviously shocked and embarrassed about it. Like, you know, and, and, um, yeah, that's, that's how, that's how I got caught. And then I had to go to court and I didn't know if I was going to go to jail or not. And, um, you know, because I didn't rat on the next guy. So I was, I was gonna, gonna have to take what was coming to me, but, uh, I, I had no, I had no criminal record, you know, so that was one thing. So. I got a lawyer anyway, and you know, I, I bet uh, he's still there. 
I'm still here. Yeah. There you go. Sorry. Yeah. So, yeah, the screen froze for a second. But yeah, this guy, this lawyer, he's like he was like the Better Call Saul of Calvin. I won't say his name. He's probably still working, but he's one of these crumpled suit kind of dudes. All the top criminals went to this guy, and I uh, went in to see this lawyer, and I was like, "Fuck, what do we do here?" And he goes, "We'll tell them you have a problem with drugs, and then the judge will go easy on you." And at the time, I didn't believe I had a problem with drugs. I was averaging. 15 pills on a night out of ecstasy. And I really didn't believe that I had a problem. I, like, that's how bad in the head I was. I said, that's a great idea. We'll pretend I have a problem. <laughs> you know, pretend I have a problem. And uh, so he started sending me to drug counseling. So I'd go to drug counseling every week. And, you know, they didn't send you to 12 step meetings in Ireland at the time. They sent you to like drug counseling. So I used to have to go in and see this drug counselor every week. And he was a really nice man. But uh, I would go in and tell him a pack of lies every week because I didn't really believe I had a problem. You know, I pretended I was sorry for it and all the rest. I kind of was sorry for it, but uh, I was I was pretty sick with the addiction. Like, and um, so I go to this drug counseling every week, and then I had to take a urine tests. You know, to, and basically the lawyer told me if you start taking drugs again and you fail the test, the judge is going to throw the book at you. So. I was doing this, dropped out of college, moved home, started working in a factory for about a year. It was really horrible work. Uh, I hated it. And I couldn't do drugs anymore, so I was just drinking. And um, anyway, time came to go up, go up into court. And um, we came in, and I'm there in my suit. The old man came with me into court, and all the other scumbags were there with their tracksuits. <laughs> me in the middle of it with, uh, with my shirt tie on me. And I was super nervous. The judge that we had at the time, his nickname was Cat Hands. My friend used to call him Cat Hands because he, he kind of sounds like a cat, like, he like sort of. So Cat Hands was the judge, and uh, he was looking at the charges, and he going, ah, these are very serious charges. And then he, the cops were in court as well. And he says to the police, he says, did he cooperate with you? And all the, all, all the scumbags in the court were like looking out. Like, did he talk, you know? And, uh, and in fairness to the cops, they said, uh, well, judge, he admitted they were his and he signed a statement admitting his guilt. And uh, then the judge says, did he tell you where he was obtaining these drugs? And uh, all the scumbags look around as well, crazy eyes, like, is this fella snitch? <laughs> and uh, and the cop says, well, actually, no, judge, he didn't want to tell us where he got them because he was worried about what might happen to his family. And then all the scumbags like nodded their heads, like, not a dog. And then and then uh, I thought the judge was going to make me say in court where I was getting them. But the fact that the old man was standing beside me in the court, I just just said that my family would be in danger. So my old man is standing right beside me. He's already going to make me put the old man in danger. So the judge had mercy on me and he said he'd adjourn it and give me probation to see how I behave. So basically I got probation and uh, I ended up being on probation for a few years and I didn't, I stayed out of trouble for a few years and I passed all my drug tests and eventually I got off with it. I was really, really lucky. And then after you, Past all those tests after the probation period is finished, did you end up going back into drug dealing? Well, even while I was on probation, even though I wasn't drug dealing, I stayed friends with my buddy Ross because 
I had got caught and he didn't. And he got bigger and bigger and bigger, like, uh-huh. in the meantime. And he was one of my close friends. So I still hung out with him a lot, like, even though it wasn't my stuff. But still hung around with the same guys I used to hang around with. I just was kind of hands off myself. Sometimes I used to go around with Ross when he would be doing deliveries around Ireland. Because he, at that point, he had a huge coke problem. Like, and sometimes he wouldn't be able to drive the car. So sometimes I'd drive the car for him. And, uh, and one night I was out with Ross while I was on probation. And uh, the cops were waiting for us. And we got lifted again. Uh-huh. <laughs> this time there was like a ton of stuff in the car. It was like 60 grand worth of stuff. Like, And they made it seem like a traffic stop. But it was somebody had snitched on them and they were waiting for us. Like, And uh, it was in Dublin. And, and <laughs> it wasn't my stuff, but I was in the car. And, uh, you know, as soon as they... they they told us to get out. They put us into separate cars. They separated us, and then they're driving us to the police station. Uh, I'm in the car talking to the cops. I'm like, I don't know about this. I'm just hanging out with my friend. And then the cops asked me, were you ever in trouble before? And I said, yeah, I'm on probation right now. And then they're like, for what? I said, dealing drugs. And then they're like, <laughs> like laughing at me. And because I would have got, I, I was probably looking at about 15 years when they brought me in. Like, and, uh, you know, especially when it wasn't even my stuff, I just happened to be in the car with him. They brought me in and get your fingerprints and your mug shots. Like back then it was ink and Polaroid, you know, so you stand in front of the, the chart. It's like six foot, five foot, you know, turn to the left, turn to the right, getting these photos with the Polaroid. And I'm in there getting printed and have photographs in the police station. And this ra- random cop is like walking by and he sees me standing in front of the chart with getting the photos. I obviously had a really sad face on me because I was looking at a lot of time in the big house. But this random cop walks in and he puts the arm around me and he, he puts the thumb up and smiles. And they take a photo of this cop with his arm around me smiling and throw that into the fucking file as well. And I could laugh about it now, but it wasn't funny at the time, you know. <laughs> But uh, but anytime I was arrested, I was uh, I, I'm not one of these dudes who like curses at the cops or fights with them. Or they're just doing their job, you know. I, I was respectful to them, you know. But uh, anyway, they brought me in that time, and we were in deep trouble. And uh, Ross, before we got caught, he had a bar of coke in the front seat with him. He and he was doing coke off the bar, like ten ounces a brick of coke. And uh, so and he had some black pants on him slacks and uh while he had been driving he was like spilling the coke on his black pants and at the time when we got arrested the cops took his pants off him as evidence his mother had to bring him in a, 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 an extra set of pants into the jail and uh i actually wasn't high or drunk when we got arrested but he was really high they put us into separate cells and you know i was in this police station and there's like a little peephole in the door and every time you hear a noise, you like jump up and look out the peephole to see who's coming. And they would like bring us in and out for interviews and walk us in, up and down uh, through the jail. And every time I would hear a noise, I'd jump, jump up and look out and I would see Ross. He'd be like walking, walking up the corridor. And every time I would see him, I'd have these worried eyes, like, because you could only see my eyes. I'd be like, trying, what's going on, dude? Are you going to tell them it's your stuff? And uh, he was like so high. He, he was acting like everything is cool. like. Like, like super confident, like we have nothing to worry about. He's like marching up and down, you know, 
and I, I was thinking, oh, your fucking mind was deep shit, like, you know? And uh, if you get arrested, they can hold you for up to a week uh, if you don't talk, you know? And I had nothing to talk about because I had nothing to do with it, and I definitely wasn't going to snitch on anybody. So, but he was keeping his mouth shut too, which was the smart thing to do, like, you know, because um, that time I got arrested, the lawyer told me, he said, don't ever make a statement. It's the worst thing you can do if you're a criminal, because sometimes the cops can fuck up the evidence and you can get away on a technicality. But uh, but anyway, so he wasn't admitting it. So they held me for two days and two nights. And uh, and I was protesting the whole time. I was like, look, it has nothing to do with me. You can drug test me. I haven't even taken it. Check, check the stuff for fingerprints, you know. But uh, in fairness, the cops were kind of cool with me. And eventually, like Ross admitted that it was his stuff eventually. And, uh, but the, I was like due to come home that weekend. And, and obviously I couldn't come home because I was, I was in jail. And my mom was expecting me. She didn't think she was going to pick me up at the train station. So I told the cops, I was like, my mother's expecting me to see me. I'm in fucking jail. What am I supposed to do? But in fairness, the cops were so cool. They brought me out to the yard, gave me some cigarettes, gave me my cell phone, and, and, told me excuses to tell my mother <laughs> that's how cool those cops were like and uh and poor mother had no idea about it like but but yeah in fairness those cops were cool like uh um and then eventually ross admitted it was his stuff and and uh and they let us go but it, it freaked the shit out of me and then somehow my probation officer never found out about that either like you know <laughs> But I, I had a lovely probation officer. She was she was really nice. She was like one of these Irish country women, you know. And uh, I suppose I was kind of manipulative at the time. Like, but we'd meet up for tea every couple of months at this hotel, and, and she was super nice. She was, she was, what's what's a young fella like you doing getting involved in drugs? And uh, I was like, uh, I was hanging out with a bad crowd, you know. <laughs> I was a fucking ringleader, but that's what I was telling her at the time, you know. And uh, but she was a lovely woman, and then. I was on probation for a couple of years and then I went back to college and I, I wanted to go to America for the summer. And uh, so I had to get permission to leave the country. And so I had to ask the probation officer. And as far as she knew, I was behaving myself. And uh, I said, uh, would it be okay if I get permission to go to America for the summer? And uh, she says, where is it you want to go? I said, uh, San Francisco. And she says, I let you go on one condition. I said, what's that? She said, I want you to get the Greyhound bus down to LA, down to Los Angeles. And I want you to get a map to the stars. And I want you to go up and look at their houses. I says, what? She goes, will you do that for me? I said, no problem. And she says, okay, I'll give you permission to go. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's how she gave me permission to go to America. It's crazy. <laughs> it sounds like me listening to that, the, those stories, man. I love listening to them. It sounds like you had someone literally watching over you that entire time. Because honestly, yeah. I mean, far out. <laughs> looks like it's the fucking Forrest Gump of criminality. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you know, that those stories aren't even in the book. Like, the, the original manuscript is like huge. It's like 430 pages. So, but it was too long. So, so <laughs> yeah, I have an awful lot of all the yarns from. Do you think that you will write another book and share more stories from your life? Because I can imagine that you'd have countless well, others. I've already written another one, yeah. Oh, sick! Is that uh, is is that in the works to come out? Can you can you share that or no? Well, I have a deal with the publisher. I'm not allowed to release a competing book for three years, but um, 
yeah, we'll see what happens. See how the first one does, you know. Man, I I can't wait to hear more of your stories. I mean, why why not like share them here? I mean, this is a story box, so we're all about stories here, man. Um, when was um when was your lowest point? Like the your most vulnerable moments that you remember? Dude, I've had a load of them. Like you know, you think a lot of people think that if you're a drug addict or an alcoholic that you hit the bottom one time. But yeah, that's that's not how it is. Like most alcoholics are drug addicts hit the bottom multiple times, you know, I've had an awful lot of low moments. Like, um, I'd say I've probably tried to kill myself like five or six times. Like, like uh, you know, I've lost count. <laughs> That's how, but, um, yeah, there's all been all these crazy times. Like the first time I think was about when I was 19 was my first time. Like, but, um, and then the very last time was before I got sober when I was 28. So, um, I've had an awful lot of low points, like, and and what happens is when you're doing a lot of drugs and you're drinking a lot, you um, the highs are really high and the lows are really low. Like everybody has problems in their life, but like whatever the problems are, seem like way way worse when you're drinking and getting high. So, yeah, um, yeah, depression can be part of it too. Like if you're if you're addicted to substances, that comes with depression, you know. Do you believe that looking back at all the things that you went through, do you believe that ultimately God was watching out for you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, how else do you explain it? Like, nobody's that lucky. Yeah. You know? But then I have a lot of dead friends too, though. How come they weren't lucky? Yeah. You know, I, um, I have an awful lot of dead friends. Like, you know? It's a hard it's a hard thing to really think about, eh? Like, why you? Have you ever, I'm pretty sure you've asked yourself that, right? Like, have you, what what have you thought as a result of asking yourself that question? Yeah, it's hard to find, uh, it's hard to find a clear answer. Like, like my mother was very religious. She is very religious. Maybe that's why. Or maybe, maybe I I didn't do that bad of things like you know um maybe i meant well a lot a lot of what i was doing even crazy shit um i i, I can't answer that I, I don't know but uh do i believe that, that uh it's more than luck definitely yeah i mean i didn't do anything that crazy or something like that but when it comes to the suicide attempts i mean i was depressed in years when I was 14 and 15 mm-hmm. and then I attempted to end my life, uh, in 2019. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I was adamant that my life was going to end, man. And mm-hmm. literally, and and then even still, I don't know if you've experienced this too, cause you mentioned that you try to end your life five times. I mean, as someone that has experienced that, you kind of, don't want to do it at the same time that you do want to do it. Like mm-hmm. you just feel like there's no other alternative. There's no other option. Cause I got to the lowest point in my life that I've ever been to. And that's why I wanted to do it because mm-hmm. I felt worthless and I felt like my life wasn't going to go anywhere else. So I felt yeah. like ending my life was my only option from, yeah. from there, but there are other options. You just don't see it in that moment. And yeah. I, it was like a miracle moment, man, where so I'm I'm 
going down the stretch of road at 130 kilometers an hour, which is like really, really fast. I'm aiming for this, this pole at the end of the road, waiting for my car to hit, but my car doesn't hit. And my car comes to a complete stop. And it was just like, I personally believe that God didn't want me to kill myself because he wanted me to experience what life has to offer leading forward, like doing this podcast, being able to speak to you, hear your stories, unbox your stories, man. Like all, all these things, they all count for something. But yeah, I, I've asked myself the same question. Like, why did he save me in that moment? Like, why didn't he just allow me to go through it? Like big, big questions, man. <laughs> Honestly. Uh, yeah. I don't know who will ever find the answer to them, but you're right. That's how it feels when, when, when you're in that suicidal moment, like, it, it literally things feel so bad that the easier way is to kill yourself. That's how I felt each of the times. And, and you know, pretty much every time I tried it, somebody else stopped me. So I've been really lucky. Like, you know, um, the wife stopped me one time. That guy who I kidnapped stopped me one time. Guy called Cole stopped me another time. Guy called Chris stopped me another time. Uh, it, it was just... I don't know, dumb luck or divine intervention. Did you they know? know? Did they know you were trying to kill yourself? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like when I was trying to kill myself that time when Travis stopped me, I had a hundred ecstasy. And uh, I didn't set out that day to kill myself. I was like, I was really depressed because I had broke up with this chick and I was madly in love with her and, and it, I was feeling sorry for myself and I got a couple of bottles of whiskey just to drown me sorrows, you know, a couple of bottles of JD. And and the more I drank, the more the ideas came into my head. Like, like I never really thought about killing myself seriously when I was sober, but like when when you have the booze or, or the drugs in you, it seems way more doable. The same as like, you're more likely to get into fights if you're drinking than if you're totally sober. It, it, it like helps you move the line of what's, what's possible and what's not. Like I think a lot of people who kill themselves is as a result of addiction or alcoholism. So that time I was drinking these bottles of whiskey and like the more I drank, the worse I felt. And then I had this hundred ecstasy pills. I was like, fuck it, I'll just take them off. I started with five, handful of five. I kept taking them and I was like putting out cigarettes on my arms. I still have the scars here. A knife. I was like cutting my hand. And, um, you know, I uh, ended up taking 30 of them. And I would have kept going, but that guy, Travis, he was living with me at the time. And, and uh, he took took the other 70 away and hid them on me. So I, I, was, I was on the way that time. Nobody even brought me to the hospital. And I survived. It was, it was mad. Like I probably did massive damage to my internal organs, but... Yeah, all kind of similar. To, each each time somebody else kind of stopped me, you know. And some of them were ridiculous. Like um, my buddy Chris, I used to used to drink with Chris and we used to hang out together. He was my life insurance man, and because uh, I had an insurance policy in case anything happened to me, the kids and the mess would be okay. And uh, so I, I was thinking, fuck it, if I kill myself, is that going to nullify the policy? And uh, so I, write, I ring him up while I'm drunk, I'm like. Hey Chris, what's happening? He goes, hey Rich, what's happening, man? I was like, dude, if they the suicide nullify the life insurance policy, he goes, yeah, you fucking idiot. <laughs> and I'm like, oh shit. And he, what he said to me, he goes, 
He goes, man, you're like a fat kid who's crying because he can't eat his cake. And uh, for some reason, him saying that to me snapped me out of it for that night. You know, it's weird. Another time a fortune teller stopped me from, from doing it by something else ridiculous. Yeah, it's crazy. Fortune teller. Fortune teller, yeah. I was, um, I used to be a carpenter. I was a gangster, but I was also a construction worker. Like this guy, a friend of mine, Dav, he got me a side job to do at the weekend. It was for a fortune teller in San Francisco. She had a, uh, an office on Laguna Honda in the city. And uh, they wanted me to build a wall or something. And uh, so I was there and I was, I was on like a really bad downer because I had been partying a lot that time. And I was thinking about killing myself. I was working there. I was using my saw, cutting my two by fours and my nail gun. I nailed it down. I was planning out my death while I was there. And uh, I was thinking, fuck it, I'll go to the bridge when I'm done, like the Golden Gate. And, uh, and my plan was go to the Golden Gate, jump off the bridge. like. And I'm thinking this while I'm working and she's watching me. And, and then I was thinking, fuck it, if I go to the bridge, uh, there's, there's a net at the Golden Gate Bridge in a couple of places. So if you jump in the wrong spot, you land in the net, you won't die. And I was thinking, fuck, knowing my luck, I'll probably land in the net. And um, and then I thought, fuck it, you know, maybe I could just shoot myself on the bridge. Like, nobody ever does that. Uh, so 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 my plan was, as soon as I'm done here, drive drive to the bridge, fucking shoot myself on the bridge. I'm thinking this while I'm working. And the woman is watching me, and she looks at me, and she goes, oh my God, you have a wonderful aura. Uh, it was so ridiculous. I laughed out loud because I was literally planning my death. And that's what she saw. That's what she said to me. And I laughed out loud because I was thinking, you fucking fraud. But her saying that to me snapped me out of it. And I didn't do it that day. You know? Mm. It's crazy. It is crazy, man. Honestly, like, yeah, thank you for sharing those stories. I know that. They're never easy to look back on, never easy to actually share again. But um, yeah, I, I appreciate you do you actually sharing that. But I want to be respectful of your time, Richie. I know we can sort of speak for ages, but I've got a couple more questions for you, if that's all right with you. Yeah. Um, you are now an actor. You are, did you ever think at all in any of those stages like that one day, hey, I'm going to be a a fairly well-known actor in Hollywood living, living the dream. <laughs> like no, I never when, when was the years. moment that you, you transitioned, man? Did you get help? Like what happened? No, I never in a million years, but I think I was going to be an actor. Cause when I was a kid, uh, I did acting for about three years when I was like really young, like 10 to 13. But I was good at it. You know, went to competitions and shit and, and won prizes and everything, but I had an audition for a movie when I was about 13 an, an Irish movie. And uh, the audition went great. And and uh, at the end, is this British casting director, she said, oh, my God, you're great. We're not going to use you in the main role, but we're probably going to use you in one of the other roles. I said, great. Fucking, I'm going to be an actor. And then she never called me. And I was so disappointed over it. I stopped acting because I thought when I was a kid, if you go to one audition and you don't get it, you're not supposed to be an actor. And I quit. And, and uh, that was the last time I had acted. And after I got sober, I stopped, stopped committing crime. I just decided that's not where I want to live anymore. I'm lucky I got away with everything I did and, and I'm going to do the right thing. So I was, my plan was to do construction for the rest of my life. And I got my contractor license and that's, that's where I planned my life to go. 
And then I had an accident and a construction job, a beam fell down and hit me, knocked me off the scaffold and broke my back. And it's permanently damaged. So I had to, I had to stop that kind of physical work and um, lost all my money, didn't know what I was going to do. And then this girl I know told me I should try modeling. And I was out of ideas and I was willing to try anything. So I sent off some pictures to some agencies and got signed to a little one and did a little bit of modeling for a few months. And a fella saw me on, on a, on a modeling website, a guy called Weston, he was the director and he was doing like a little low budget gangster movie and he asked me to be in it. And that's how I got my first role. And then I decided, I, I like this. I'm going to try and be an actor now. And I, I took a bunch of classes and the role got bigger and I moved to LA and here I am nine years later, 10 years later. <laughs> <laughs> what age were you when you got your first gig? 30. 30 years old, man. Mm-hmm. So that that goes to show you people, you can be any age and, you know, be something. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. But um, how did you get sober, man? Who, who helped you out with that? This guy, Bernard. Um, he was another sober Irish guy. He, uh, we used to work together when I was a carpenter and, and he went to the 12 step meetings and he gave me his number one time and, he said, if you, have, if you ever want to get sober, give me a call. So that time, last time after I tried to kill myself, uh, I decided to ring him. And uh, he brought me to my first meeting and he became my sponsor and basically showed me how to do it. Saved my life. And how long have you been sober before? Almost 12 years now. Well done, man. Cheers. <laughs> didn't do it on my own. <laughs> no, man, you, you, you obviously had help, which we all need someone to reach out and, and help us, or we need to reach out ourselves. Um, but how did having the 12-step program, how did that help you stay sober? Well, basically gave me a psychological conversion where before I started going to these meetings and before I worked those steps, drinking and getting high was something I needed to do. like. If you're an alcoholic or an addict, either the booze or whatever, your weed or whatever you like to do is your medicine. So it's like something you use if you're bored, something you use if you're happy, something you use if you're sad. It's it's what you use for everything. Like a normal person can take it or leave it. They drink once in a while. But if you're an addict, um, it's something that you can't do without, something that you need. And... And like the difference between an addict and a heavy drinker, uh, an addict has big consequences. You know, if you're losing jobs or if you're getting in trouble with the law, that kind of stuff, it's probably an addict, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But uh, yeah, a heavy drinker can kind of keep the show on the road. But yeah, basically by going to those meetings and working work on my program, I learned how to live life without the medicine that I needed before. Yeah. Yeah, I myself haven't used the 12-step program, um, but what are some of the things that you do today to stop you from going down any of those dark paths once again or going back to the addictions? Well, I haven't even thought about drinking or getting high in about 11 years, but I still go to the meetings because part of staying sober is to help other people. one of the, the catchphrases they have is can't keep it if you don't give it away. So I work with other people and 
I still, if people ask me to tell my story, I show up and I do it if I can. You know, I had to, I had to stop living the way I was living before. I was, I was out for number one at that time. I was dishonest. I was a thief. Um, I was capable of violence. You know, uh, I had to, I had to completely change the way I was living and the way I was, I was thinking. And it's probably the best thing you ever did, man, honestly, because you sharing your story is so powerful and it can help so many people. I mean, I've really, really enjoyed listening to some of the stories that you haven't shared before and even the ones that you have. Um, why did you, or what is the the most challenging part you think about sharing your story? Is it challenging for you? Yeah, obviously it is. Like, it's obviously hard for my family too. Like, <laughs> They don't, they don't, they don't uh, you know, they obviously don't like me sharing this kind of stuff. Like, but, um, like, I've been sharing my story at the meetings for 11 or 12 years now. Yeah. But that's one thing, because when you're talking to another room full of addicts and drunks, they get it because they have the same problem. They understand, but different when you're saying it to people who don't know about it. But I think it's important to be authentic. And that's why I do, you know, it, it, it could be helpful to somebody. And even if you don't have a problem or, you know, if you enjoy a good story and if you've dark sense of humor, you'd enjoy it. <laughs> dark sense of humor. I love it. <laughs> you've got this book out, man. Uh, the gangster's guide to sobriety. Where do you want people to get a copy? Do you want them to go to a local bookstore? Do you want them to get it on Amazon and where can they connect with you as well? Um, you, you should be able to, in America, you can get it in on Amazon, Walmart, Simon and Schuster, Barnes and Noble. I think in England, you can get it on WH Smith. You can get it in Australia too, somewhere, but, but, uh, I forget where, but if you just Google it, you'll be able to find it. And if you're not a big reader, you like listening to books. I, I do the audible as well. So you can get it on audible too. And you can reach me on Instagram. Um, Richie Actor is my uh, is my handle, and if any of you guys who haven't heard Jay before, uh, you should subscribe to Jay and rate this podcast. It helps me a lot too. Oh, thanks, man! <laughs> Didn't know you're going to do that. that. That's a huge honor, actually. Do you um do you do all the voices in the audio book? We do, yeah. <laughs> if you haven't noticed, Richie is great with uh, voices. <laughs> A lot better at it than than me. I can barely do my own voice. <laughs> You're doing a good job, Dave. You're a podcast. <laughs> uh, thanks, man. I, I appreciate you immensely. I've got two quick final questions for you. I know we've gone really, really long, but what do you love the most about yourself and your story? Um, I love that it's a positive story that um, the negative first half of my life changed into something positive. Mm -hmm. powerful man this is my all-time favorite question i love asking all my guests at the end it is a hypothetical one but i want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100 now 
you having uh, your your book adapted into, a, I believe, as a movie or a TV show at some stage soon, which is pretty incredible. So this this question is from much, much later. <laughs> Just imagine with me that all your friends and your family have been able to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Um, hopefully, if I keep keep going the way I'm going, it'll, it'll be all positive from here on out <laughs> and, uh, and that I was authentic. Good send-off message. Richie Stevens, thank you so much, my friend, for your time today, your stories. Immensely enjoyed each and every one of them and, and for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.